And I also want to take a moment and not only thank God for all the mothers who are a part of the Carville campus and the East Memphis campus and uh, our church at home campus, but I know that over the past year, uh, there's been a lot of loss and a lot of suffering in our congregation. And so if you lost a, a mother or a grandmother uh, or a great-grandmother or a mother-type figure in your life, I also want to take a moment and remember and honor those women as well. Can we give them a round of applause as well? So regardless of where you are in our High Point family, mothers, we're so grateful for you, and uh, we wouldn't be the same without you. Now, this morning, uh, we are in the fifth week of our nine-week series entitled Battle Ready. And today we are going to be looking at the next piece of armor, the next piece of equipment, which is the shield of faith, the shield of faith. And our passage this morning, uh, which has been our passage for the entire series, is Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your devices, go ahead and turn those on. And we will be in Ephesians chapter 6, and I will be reading from verse 10 through 16. Ephesians 6, 10 through 16. If you are with me, say amen. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Everybody say stand firm. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for Mother's Day. God, I am grateful for all the mothers that are represented here at the Carville campus, over at the East Memphis campus, and also our church at home campus. But like I mentioned, Lord, we also want to remember and we want to honor uh, those mothers uh, that are no longer with us, that are, aren't here on earth but are there in heaven with you. We thank you for their legacy and we thank you for the impact that they had on our lives. Father, as we transition now to look at your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we speak on uh, the shield of faith, I pray that you would help me to place my faith, to place my trust, to place my confidence, uh, not in my ability, uh, but in your ability. Father, I pray that from the moment I say amen, that the words that come out of my mouth will not be my words, but would be your words. I pray that you would prepare me and that you would prepare our people for this time in your word. We ask it and we beg it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. All right, so this morning, like I said, we are going to be looking at the shield of faith. The shield of faith. And what we're going to do is we are going to look at the shield of faith under three headings. We are going to begin by looking at the reality of faith. Then we are going to look at the necessity of faith. And we are going to conclude by looking at the dependency of faith. So the reality, the necessity, and the dependency. So let's begin today by looking at the reality of faith. Now, in order for us to have a proper understanding and a proper appreciation for the shield of faith, I believe that what we need is a biblical definition for the word faith. And the reason why is I would argue that faith is easily uh, one of the most misinterpreted, misdefined, misused, and abused terms in Christianity today. When you think about the word of faith movement and you think about the prosperity movement and you think about uh, certain apostolic movements, a lot of those movements have unbiblical definitions of biblical faith. And so in light of that, a lot of Christians are not living in light of the full reality of biblical faith. 
And so what I want to do here on the front end in this first point is I want to give you a biblical definition for the Greek word faith. And if you're taking notes, I want you to make sure you write this down because this is a very important part of our talk, of this talk. Here's what the Greek word faith means in the New Testament. The, the Greek word there is the Greek word pistis, and here's what it means. It means to place your total trust and reliance on something. Faith means to place your total trust and reliance on something. Another way to define faith is it means to lean and to rest your full weight on something. To lean and rest your full weight on something. That is the definition of faith in light of that Greek word. But when we look at scripture, we actually have two very important passages in scripture that help us to define the word faith. One of, the word, one of those verses is Hebrews 11 verse 1. In Hebrews 11 verse 1, the author of Hebrews writes this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But what we see with both the word assurance and the word conviction is that faith is way more solid than many of us think. See, in scripture, faith is a very solid, concrete thing. And both the word assurance and the word conviction reveal that to us. But I would argue that the best definition for the word faith in scripture comes actually from the Old Testament. And it's a verse that many of us have read and many of us have memorized, but it's not maybe a verse that you thought had anything to do with faith. But I would argue that in light of the definition of the Greek word faith, this is the best verse on faith in all the Bible. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. If you look at this verse, it has all the language that I just used to define biblical gospel faith. The first word is the word trust. Faith is to trust. It says to trust in the Lord with what? With all your heart. But in our day, in our culture, when we think of trust, I mean, we think of heart, we think of our emotions. But what we see in the Bible is that in Scripture, the heart represented the entire person. So when it calls us to trust in the Lord with all our heart, Scripture is calling us to trust God with all of our intellect and with all of our volition. It's with your entire person that you are being called to trust in God. And then the second part is do not lean on your own understanding. We said that trust means to rest on something, to place your full body weight on something. So he says, the author of, of Proverbs 3 says, do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, for us to have true biblical faith, we must put our full weight on God and God alone. We are not to lean on our own understanding. We are not to lean on our own resources. We are not to lean on our own intellect. We are not to lean on our own uh, 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 retirement plan. The only thing that we are called to lean on in light of Scripture is on God. I am leaning on nothing else but God and God alone. That is the biblical definition for faith. I came across a story this week uh, about a missionary. His name was John Patton. And John uh, Patton was in many ways the father of modern missions because he was from Scotland. He was a, a Protestant missionary from Scotland. And he went to the South Pacific, uh, the islands in the South Pacific to reach very remote people. And when he got there, he started translating the Bible into their language. But there was one word that John Patton had an issue with translating, and it was the word faith. The people in that tribe did not have a word for biblical faith. And so for months, he didn't know how to translate the word faith into their language. And the story goes that one day he was in his house, and uh, one of the natives was running through the village to get to his house. And by the time he arrived in John Patton's house, this, this missionary was exhausted and he literally walked into the house and threw himself on one of the chairs that was in John Patton's living room. And when he threw himself on the chair, exhausted, he said, I am throwing all my weight on this chair. 
And at that moment, John Patton knew how to translate faith into their language. And literally, faith in their translation of the Bible is to throw all your weight on something. Because that's what biblical faith means. It means to put your total trust, your total reliance, your total weight on someone or something. That is the biblical concept of faith. You know, one of the ways that, 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 that I think kind of helps me, I like thinking in illustrations, and I would argue that the, probably the best modern-day example of biblical faith is a hammock. Here's the thing about a hammock, okay? When it comes to hammocks, there are two types of people. There are people who can rest in a hammock, and there are people who cannot rest in a hammock. I am one of the people that cannot rest in a hammock. When I get in a hammock, I just don't trust said hammock, okay? I will lay in that hammock with a leg out on the floor... Because I just think that that hammock, I'm going to be the guy that breaks the hammock. The tree's going to give out or the string's going to break or the fabric's going to tear. And I'm going to be the guy who the hammock let down. You see, but there are some people who are pro-hammock. Uh, my father-in-law, who is here now, he's here uh, from out of town. My father-in-law is around 6'1". I'm not going to guess his weight, but I'm going to say he's, he's definitely over 200 pounds. Let's just say that, okay. My father-in-law, that man is big. And he has a hammock in his backyard. And he gets in that thing with no hesitation. He's slow for everything else. But, man, when he gets in that hammock, he just hops, skips, and jumps right into that thing. And, and, and the tree bends and, and, the, and the string stretches and the fabric is about to rip. But he doesn't care. And he will lay in that hammock and sleep there for three hours with no problem whatsoever. See, I don't have the faith to do something like that, right? But, but, but a hammock, I would argue, is the, the best picture for what biblical faith is. It, it, in order to truly have faith, in order to truly trust, in order to truly rely, we have to get into the, the gospel hammock with no foot out and just rely on God. The next time you're in a hammock or the next time you see someone in a hammock, I want you to think of biblical faith. That is the picture of biblical faith, to lean your full weight on something. Now, hopefully what this definition does is it starts to change your theology of faith, your view of biblical faith. Why? Because so often when we think of faith, uh, we tend to think of faith as either back there or up there. And here's what I mean. So often when we talk about faith in Christianity, we talk about our faith decision, right? Back in 1984, I placed my faith in Jesus. So we tend to think about faith being back there or we think about faith being up there, right? Having the faith that maybe one day God will move that mountain for you or having the faith that maybe one day Jesus will return. But oftentimes when we talk about faith, we either talk about faith back there or faith up there. But what we see here in light of this definition is that faith isn't wishful thinking. And faith is actually, has way more to do with the present than it has to do with the past or the future. Faith is actually way more practical than many of us thought coming in here this morning. That's why in scripture, we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. I'm going to be totally honest with you here. For the longest time, I thought walking by faith and not by sight meant that I just walked blindly through life. Like, I just don't know where I'm going. I have no idea what the plan is today. I have no idea what the plan is next week. I'm going to just keep doing this. That's what I thought walking by faith was. Because I am very much a sight person. I like having a plan for my day and for my week and for my month and for my decade. Ask my wife. Right? I am very much a plan person. I like getting things done. So I never, I thought, well, maybe that's just something I'm not called to do. Walk by faith because I got to see where I'm going. But, but here's the thing. In light of this definition, and I don't want you to miss this, in light of this definition, walking by faith has nothing to do with walking blindly, and it has everything to do with walking dependently. Say it again. Walking by faith has nothing to do with walking blindly, but has everything to do with walking dependently. So every morning, this is how practical faith is, every morning if you don't pray and you don't read, and you don't remind yourself of the gospel every morning, you're making a decision. Am I, am I going through this day trusting in myself or trusting in God? 
Am I going through this day trusting in my resources or trusting in my redeemer? Am I going through this day trusting in my relationships or trusting in my God? Who are you trusting in? That's what walking by faith means. It has nothing to do with walking blindly. and has everything to do with walking dependently. Who are you depending on? Who are you relying on? Who are you trusting in on a daily, moment-to-moment basis? That's what walking by faith means. That's why I would argue that in Scripture, walking by faith and walking by the Spirit are the exact same thing. It's walking by the Spirit and placing my trust and my reliance and my confidence in the Spirit of God as I walk through my day and my week. That's what it means to walk by faith. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, wrote this. He says, the issue of faith is not so much whether we believe in God, but whether we believe the God we believe in. See, I have no doubt that there are many people here who believe in God. But do you actually believe God? Like, do you trust God's word? Do you trust that God will do what he says he will do? You can believe God in your head objectively and not believe God in your heart subjectively. That's what it means to walk by faith. You see, but here's the thing. There are many people here in this room, and I include myself in this, who you actually might have trust issues, right? Maybe you were hurt by your parents. Maybe you were betrayed by a loved one. Maybe something happened in a previous relationship with one of your friends, and you have trust issues. And what you have done without even realizing is you've taken those trust issues and you have projected them onto God. And you can't trust God because you don't trust anybody else. You can't rely on God because you can't rely on anybody else but yourself. That is what keeps us from walking by faith. And think about it. If that's the reason why many of us can't trust God, then what's keeping us from walking by faith, get this, is not sin but cynicism. We just don't trust people. We never have and we never will. And so I can't walk by faith. I got to keep walking by sight. What's interesting is when you look at what Paul writes, Paul says that in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. See, so often we think that faith is when things get difficult, when, 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 when someone is sick or when money is tight. Right? But Paul says that we are to take up the shield of faith in all circumstances. Every day, every moment of every day, we need to be taking up the shield of faith. We are to be walking by faith and trusting and relying on God for everything that we need. That's what it means to take up the shield of faith. That is the biblical definition of faith. So, now that we have seen the reality of faith, the next thing that I want to look at this morning is I want to look at the necessity of faith. The necessity of faith. Now that we've seen the biblical reality, I want to look at the biblical necessity of faith. The, the question is this. Why is faith so needed in the life of a believer? And why does the Apostle Paul compare faith to a shield? Why does he describe faith as our shield. Well, in order to answer those questions, I'm going to give you some background on what the shield actually was. Now, a Roman soldier actually had several different types of shields that they would carry around. But primarily, there was two shields that a Roman soldier would use. Uh, the first shield was this smaller shield. It was a, a wooden round shield that was about two feet in diameter, and they would have it on their left arm. And that shield was primarily used for when you were participating in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But that's not the type of shield that Paul is making reference to in this passage. The type of shield that Paul is making reference to is the thureos. That's the Greek word for this shield. And, and the word there, thureos, the root word for that Greek word is door. Like a door in your house. 
And the reason why that shield, this second shield that Paul's referring to, was referred to as thureos is because it was literally the size of a door. It was a much bigger shield. It was around two feet wide and about four feet tall. And what a soldier would do is they would hold it, and if you, if you stuck it in the ground and hid behind it, it would cover your entire body. That is the type of shield that Paul is making reference to here. And here's what this shield would be, essentially. It would be a piece of wood, of solid wood, and then the wood would be covered with metal and with leather. And that would be the shield that soldiers used. But here's the thing about this shield. And here is why I would argue that the shield is different from any other piece of equipment that we have looked at and will look at in this series. Unlike every other piece of equipment that we've looked at, the shield was only used by particular soldiers at particular seasons. In other words, not every Roman soldier had this type of shield. It was only used by particular soldiers in particular seasons. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me begin with the first thing. It was used by particular soldiers. The only Roman soldiers that would carry this type of shield were the soldiers that were on the front lines. So if you were not on the front lines, think about how big Roman armies were. If you were not on the front lines, you would not have one of these shields. If you were 10 rows back or if you were back at camp, not ready to fight, you would not have one of these shields. The only soldiers who had this shield were very particular soldiers, and it was the soldiers who were on the front lines. Okay? That's very important. So it was used by only a particular set of soldiers. But here's the other thing. It was used only in particular times and seasons. And what do I mean by that? These types of shields were only used when the Romans were trying to attack a city or besiege a city. In other words, if Romans were going to meet you out in, the, in a field somewhere, they probably wouldn't bring these type of shields. They were used primarily when you were trying to besiege or overtake a city. That's when these were used. So here's the mental picture. You have these two by four wooden shields that have metal and leather on them. And only the, the two front rows of soldiers would have it. And then what you would do is as you would get closer to these cities, these soldiers would walk. They would have to walk in perfect battle formation because when they got close enough to be fired upon, what they would do is they would interlock their shields and they would create this thing called a phalanx and it would be unpenetrable. And not only that, the reason why there were more rows behind them is because the people behind them would actually hold their shields on top. So it would not only cover you horizontally, but it would also cover you from any vertical attack. You would like create a roof over all the people that were in that front line. That is how this shield worked. And if one of them died, if one of, someone died, the next man would just be up. He would either have his own shield or he would pick up the dead guy's shield and move up. And that's how this phalanx worked. Which is why not everyone had to have one. Because the next man would just come up and that's how they would make progress and ultimately besiege the different cities that they were attempting to take out. So what we see is we see the, the necessity of faith, not just because it's compared to a shield, but we also see the necessity of faith because uh, Paul says in the text that the reason why we need faith is in order to protect, protect ourselves from the fiery darts of the enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the phrase fiery darts, I don't necessarily get nervous, right? Darts don't seem that dangerous to me. Like when I think of darts, I think of a drunk frat guy at a bar somewhere, right? Like I, I don't necessarily think of war and Satan attacking me, right? But, 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 but here is what you need to know about these fiery darts. I'm not sure why they translate it this way into English. Uh, what they are referencing were actually arrows. So again, remember where we're at. It's the frontline soldiers who have these shields and they were used when? When they were what? Besieging or advancing on a city. And what you would do is the closer you would get on every one of these city walls would be archers. And what these archers would do is they would take their arrows and they would cover the tip of their arrows in cloth. They would dip that cloth 
in pitch, and they would light those arrows on fire, and then they would shoot it at you. So these aren't cute little darts that just stinged you a bit. These were flaming missiles that if they landed on you, you would die. Not just because of the impact of the arrow, but because it would literally burn your body all the way over. Because the pitch was very flammable. So it burned fiercely on whatever it touched and whatever it landed on. So, so as you are walking closer and closer to these city gates, these city walls, these arrows would keep flying at you and flying at you and flying at you. Which is why having the proper formation was so important. Because if, if only one of the soldiers didn't do his job, people would start to die. And here's what's interesting. I, I didn't even know about this. As, as I was studying, uh, one of the things that I discovered is that what tended to kill Roman soldiers was not the first row of arrows or line of arrows. It was the second. Because what would happen is the arrows would be shot and maybe you blocked some, maybe you didn't block others. But, but the fire from these arrows would start to spread on the grass or on your tunic or whatever. And so soldiers would be tempted to drop their shields. And it was always the second row of arrows that would start killing people. Because of how flammable these arrows actually were. The spatter would spread all throughout the field. And so what would Roman soldiers do? Well, in order to prepare themselves for these arrows, the Roman soldiers would actually drench the leather that was on their shield in water. They would drench it. They would soak it in water so that when the arrow landed, the fire would go out. When the arrow landed, the water would extinguish the fiery darts or the fiery arrows. And that's what it took. And you would continue to make more and more progress until you overtook the city. I came across a story um, about a Roman soldier named Sceva. And it says here that after the siege of the Dyrrachium, so there's a city called Dyrrachium. After the siege of Dyrrachium, Sceva, the Roman soldier, counted no less than 220 arrows sticking into his shield. He looked at his shield and there was 220 arrows that had landed on his shield. That is the word picture that the Apostle Paul wants you and I to have when he talks to us about the shield of faith. Now, there are two very important observations, two very crucial observations that I want to make about this image that Paul is explaining and displaying for us. The, the first observation I want to make is the position of the soldiers. And the second observation I want to make is the protection of the soldiers. Let me, let me begin with this observation. The first observation I want to make, and, and I'm, I'm going to be coming at some of you right now, okay? And, 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 and if I step on your toes, I promise that I'm actually aiming for your heart, okay? So, 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 he, so, he, so here, 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 here's what it is. The first thing I need you to see is that the soldiers who were most likely to be attacked by the arrows from the enemy were the soldiers that were on the front lines. Okay? It was, so, so, so let's move over to Christianity, which is what Paul's trying to do with this illustration. The soldiers, the Christians who are most likely to be attacked by arrows are the Christians who are on the front lines advancing the kingdom of God and pushing back the gates of hell. Okay? But, but, but here's the thing. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, oh, you know, life's been good. No issues over here. My life has been pretty steady, pretty good, not that bad. Well, in light of this passage, church, that might not be a good thing. The reason why Satan is not attacking you is because you are not attacking him. See, what people don't understand is that Satan is limited in his resources. Unlike God, Satan isn't omniscient. He doesn't know everything. Unlike God, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. He has limited resources. And so if Satan only has one bullet in the chamber, he's not going to use it on the Christian that's back at camp playing video games. He's going to use it to take out the general, to take out the people that are advancing on his kingdom. And so if, if, if you look at your Christian life 
and you're not really reading, and you're not really praying, and you're not really evangelizing, and you're not really disciple-making, and you're not really serving, then don't be surprised when Satan leaves you alone. You're not a threat to him. He's not a threat to you because you're not a threat to him. Listen, I, I, I got to go here. I have to go here. Why? Because one of my jobs as your pastor is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. My job, that's why we're doing what we're doing in the fall. We are going to jump into discipleship because that's what Jesus says we're to do. If we are Christians that are not making disciples, we are not doing the work that Jesus calls us to do. I am not the only disciple maker at this church because I get paid for it. Every single one of us is called to do the work of the ministry. We are called to make disciples. We are called to share our faith. And so part of my job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry, church. And so if Satan's leaving you alone, it's because you're leaving him alone. And so let's say, for example, you have gone through some difficulty in this season. Things have been hard for you. Well, it could be because Satan's attacking you. Or it could be because God's correcting you. Don't confuse conflict with the enemy with correction from your father. Because the Bible says you will reap what you sow. In Hebrews it says that God disciplines the children that he loves. If you are placing your trust and reliance on something other than Jesus, you better believe God's going to show up and tear your tower of Babel down. And just like that story, he's going to have to come down from heaven to look at it because it's so puny, it's so little, the thing you're putting your trust in. He's like, ah, this is it, huh? Wow, that's your strong tower. Oh, okay, cool. Let me rip that down. Because God will not share his glory with anybody. God will let no one else lay in the hammock with him. He's the only hammock that he will allow you to rest in. God will, I can guarantee you this. One of the things I pray for you, actually, is that the Holy Spirit would systematically destroy and remove all the idols in your life. That every single one of your idols would just disappoint you incredibly so that you go back to God. God will not share his glory with anybody. So maybe you're suffering because the enemy is coming after you. Or maybe you're suffering because your father is correcting you. I say this, church, I say this because so many of us, remember what we said the definition of faith is. It means to trust. It means to rely on something. So many of us are trusting in our money. So many of us are trusting in our relationships. So many of us are trusting in our education. So many of us are trusting in our retirement. So many of us are trusting in everything but Jesus. God will not share his glory with anybody. So maybe the reason why you're being attacked is not because you're on the front lines doing the work of the kingdom. But because you're all the way back there trying to build your own empire. God loves you too much to leave you there. I say all this not to guilt you. I'm not a, I, I really don't like being a guilt guy. If anything, I, I hang my head on being a grace guy. I always want to preach grace. But, but here's the thing. I want every single high pointer to be a disciple-making believer. Every single high pointer to be equipped to advance the kingdom of God and to push back the gates of hell. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. My, my hope in my verse, my, I, you guys should know by now that my favorite author is C.S. Lewis. But a lot of people don't know that this is actually my favorite C.S. Lewis, Lewis quote. You ready? He says this. My hope is that when, when I die, all of hell rejoices that I am out of the fight. That's my hope and my prayer for you. So the first observation that we see is we see the position of the soldiers. The second observation that, we, that I want you to see is I want you to see the protection of the soldiers. Because remember what we said about the soldiers who were on the front lines. The soldiers who were on the front lines were not alone. They were standing next to other soldiers who also had shields. And why is that important? Because when the attack became uh, 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 intense... They would interlock their shields and they would protect one another. Listen, church, the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. So, so I don't want you to get all riled up right now and take your sword and your shield and go attack the enemy. We are to do it in community. We are to do it together. 
See, because these darts, these arrows that Satan sends, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Satan knows which arrows work on you. He knows which arrows are going to get through. So for some people, he sends arrows of guilt and shame. For others, he sends arrows of accusation and temptation. Why? Because Satan knows which arrows get through. And so the reason why it's important for us to be in community is because when we are in community, we interlock our shields. And my brother's or my sister's faith is going to protect me. Their shield will protect me from the attacks of the enemy. We are way less likely to be deceived. We are way less likely to be debilitated by the, acts, by the, by the attacks of the enemy if we are in Christian community. That's what we are called to do. Which is why Paul says that in all circumstances... We are to take up, the Greek phrase there, to take up, means to take something with you on a journey in order to use it. Not just to carry it, but in order to use it. Every day, Paul says, we are to take up the shield of faith. And we're not called to do it alone. We are called to do it together. So, the first thing we see in this passage is we see the reality of faith. The second thing we see is the necessity of faith. And then lastly, the third and final thing that we see in this text is we see the dependency of faith. The dependency of faith. Now, the reason why I want to conclude with the dependency of faith is because I want to make sure that all of us understand just how radically dependent biblical faith actually is. Because even after all this, some of us might still not understand just how radical biblical faith actually is. And I would argue that the reason why it's so hard for us to understand it is because we are tempted to fall into a lie and fall into a trap that Satan loves to tell. You see, one of the things that Satan wants you to think is that he hates faith. Oh, Satan, Satan hates faith. Satan despises faith. There's one thing Satan doesn't want us to have is faith. But what if I told you that Satan doesn't actually have any problem with faith? What if I told you that Satan is actually fine with faith? As a matter of fact, I would argue that's true of not just Satan, but it's true of the world we live in. Our, the world we live in has no issue whatsoever with the concept of faith. We, we hear people talk about it all the time. My faith and your faith and their faith and let's respect all faith. Neither Satan nor the world has any problem with the concept of faith. As long, get this, as long as your faith is in faith. As long as your faith is in yourself. If your faith is in faith or your faith is in yourself, Satan has no problem with faith. Satan goes, hey, go get him, tiger. That's why C.S. Lewis, I'm quoting him again. I don't have this one in my notes, but I just thought of this. C.S. Lewis says that if Satan ever took over a city, people think that there would be rampant sin. But what he says is if Satan actually ever took over a city, everybody would be at church, no one would miss a Sunday, and everyone would check every box. Why? Because Satan actually sometimes likes religion more than rebellion. If Satan ever took over a city, there wouldn't be rebellion, there would be religion. Because Satan has no problem with faith as long as your faith is in yourself, as long as your faith is in you, as long as the person who you are trusting in and relying on is yourself, Satan will amen that all day. Church, what makes faith effective is not faith itself, but it's the object of that faith. Let me say that again. What makes faith effective is not faith itself, but the object of that faith. Where is your faith going? Where is your, what is your faith in? That's where true power is actually found. It's not faith in faith. It is faith in God. Listen, if we are not careful, church, and this has happened in a lot of Christian circles. If we are not careful, we can make faith another rung in the religious ladder. We can make faith another step in the religious staircase. We can make faith another box on the religious checklist. 
And what, what happens when we have an unbiblical definition of faith is we misinterpret passages like Hebrews 11, verse 6. Look what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 6. The author of Hebrews says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. But here's what a lot of Christians do. They hear this verse and they're like, I got to have faith. Well, if the only thing that makes me acceptable before God is faith, man, I got to hunker down and I got to have faith. Because faith is going is to make me acceptable and pleasing to God. The problem is the author of Hebrew, he, he's Hebrews, he's in chapter 11. He spent the first 10 chapters talking to you about a very particular type of faith. And it is gospel faith in Jesus Christ. What makes you pleasing to God is not faith in faith. It's not faith in yourself. It is faith in your Savior. In Romans 17, Romans 1 verse 17, Paul writes, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting the book of Habakkuk. He's going back to the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. One of the things that we learned a couple of weeks ago is that our righteousness doesn't come from us, but it comes vertically from Jesus. You can believe that part, but you still might believe that the faith part is up to you. Man, I got to walk by faith. It's up to me. I'm righteous. I got to have faith. And we can end up having a religious faith instead of a redemptive faith. And we end up placing our faith not in Christ, but in faith. Or even worse, in ourselves. That is not the type of faith that scripture calls us to. Here's another verse that a lot of people don't know, but it just shows uh, how tempted we are to believe this lie that Satan tells. 1 John 5, 4 through 5 says this. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Oh, man, uh, prosperity guys love this verse. It is our faith that overcomes the world. Here's the problem. The problem is verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. In other words, what helps us to overcome the world is not our faith in faith, is not our faith in self, but it's our faith in our Savior, church. The only faith that pleases God is gospel faith. That is what scripture teaches. So what we discover is that our true victory and our true shield is not faith in faith, but it is faith in God. And that's why in Psalm 18 and in Proverbs chapter 30, in both of those chapters we are told that the shield, it uses shield language in the Old Testament. And in Psalms 18 and Proverbs 30 we are told that our shield is actually God. God is the shield of his people and all who take refuge in him shall be saved. So our shield is not ultimately our faith, our shield is ultimately God. Those who are in him shall be safe. That's what the Bible promises. And then in the New Testament, we see it again. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, uh, Paul says that, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom, in Jesus, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Blessed, past tense. And one of the things that we said at the beginning of this series, and I don't want you to miss it, is that when you put on the armor of God, what you are actually doing is putting on the person of Jesus Christ. That being in Christ and putting on the armor are the same thing. So in Colossians, when Paul calls us to put off sin and put on Christ, that's just another phrase for putting on the armor of God. And so all those blessings are past tense. He has blessed us with all the privileges, with all the benefits, and with all the power that is ours in Christ Jesus. Our shield is God. And when we place our faith in Jesus, we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And everything that's true of Christ is now true of us. In order to be filled with faith for God, we must first be emptied from faith in ourselves. A lot of, we don't like that part. We like the faith in God part. We don't like the not having faith and trust in ourselves part. In order to be filled with faith in God, we must first be emptied from faith in ourselves. In order to rely on Christ's sufficiency, we must first repent of self-sufficiency. 
John the Baptist probably said it best. He says, in order for God to increase in your life, you must first what? Decrease. That's how faith works. Church, you can't have faith in Jesus and in yourself at the same time. You can't trust Jesus and yourself on a daily basis. You can't. That's what biblical faith teaches. So what we discover is that our problem is not our ability to trust, is not our ability to rely. We don't have a faith problem. We have a direction problem. The, the problem is the direction of our faith. The problem is the object of our faith. I don't know about you, but here's what I've realized in my life. That, that if the biblical definition of faith is to trust and rely, it takes a lot of faith every morning to take off the, whatever religious yoke I have on my back. The, the yoke of my family, the, the yoke of my finances, the yoke of my future. It takes a lot of faith every day by believing the gospel to take off that yoke and to put on the yoke of Jesus. It takes a lot of faith to do something like that. It takes a lot of faith to believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It takes a lot of faith to believe that on a daily basis. It takes a lot of faith to believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, on, bad, on good days it's not hard to believe that. But on our bad days, right, on the days that we're discouraged, on the days uh, that we, we, we have a temper, on the days that we're impatient, on the days that we're depressed, on the days that we're angry, on the days that we're numb, it is hard to believe and trust and place our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, that's exactly what scripture teaches. That God, through Jesus, get this, loves you just as much on your worst day than he does on your best day. It takes faith to believe that. Because only the gospel teaches that. Only the gospel teaches that. And one of the things we have to understand, church, is that Jesus didn't come to do part of the work and then gave you the rest of the work. That's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do all of the work. So, so here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to make you redeemable. He came to redeem you. He, he didn't come to make you lovable. And then you take it from there. No, he came to, to love you. Jesus didn't come to make you savable. He came to save you. Jesus didn't come to make you forgivable. He came to forgive you. It takes faith to believe that. And here's what's beautiful about the gospel. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Paul writes, he's quoting this old poem, and he says this. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. That God is faithful even on the days that we are faithless. It takes faith to believe that. And when you look at scripture, you know how many times people could have ruined God's plan because of their lack of faith? Abraham, Abraham's lack of faith didn't stop Isaac from coming along. Peter's lack of faith didn't stop Jesus from dying on the cross. Thomas's lack of faith didn't stop Jesus from resurrecting from the dead. And praise God for that. Because even when we are faithless, God is faithful. The gospel teaches this. It's not our faithlessness in him doesn't hinder his faithfulness to us. So here's what we discover about gospel faith. Gospel faith is not believing in God for what we will get. But it's believing in God for what we already have gotten and have. That's what gospel faith is. Gospel faith is not about some future victory that we will one day achieve. But it's believing in God for the, the victory that we've already received. You see, that's why one of the most dangerous things we can do is when we tell people that it's ultimately their faith that determines everything. Like there are people who have been told if you just have enough faith. Just enough faith, God will move mountains. Right? Just a, a mustard seed of faith, Jesus says. But if you read that passage, what Jesus is actually telling those 12 fools, he's telling them, you don't even have that much faith. Because if you had that much faith, you would move a mountain. But you never will. 
because you don't have that much faith. People read, misread that. They're like, I just got to have a mustard seed of faith. All right, Jesus. I got, no, no, you're misreading the passage if that's what you think. And so a lot of people are determining whether God is good or not on whether he moved the mountain or not. But here's the problem. What if God never moves the mountain? There are people here who are angry at God because God never moved the mountain that he never promised he would move. What if God never moves the mountain? If your faith is predicated on him moving a mountain, then that's not gospel faith. You know why? Because gospel faith has faith in God whether he moves the mountain or not. Because even if God never moved that mountain, we are told that he moved heaven and hell to save us. That's where true faith is found. True gospel faith understands that what we need is not more from God, but more of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And God, I want to pray for the people here in this room who have yet to place their faith in you. Father, I pray that right now you would be working in them. Lord, maybe they had a different definition of what true faith is. They, they didn't know. And Lord, I pray that for those who have yet to place their faith in you, that today would be the day that they do that. That today would be the day that they put their full trust, their full reliance, their full confidence in you. That today would be the day that they rest their full weight on you. Because you are able, Lord. You are willing, Lord. And you prove that on the cross. So I pray right now for that person. They know who they are, who needs to place their faith in you today. Father, we thank you. For the gospel. And I pray for the people who, like me, they, they have faith, but it, we're so quick to redirect that faith and place our faith in something else. For the people who lay in the hammock but keep one leg out, I pray that all of us this week, by faith, would put our leg back in the hammock and rest in the gospel. That we would know that at the end of the day, whether we are in a good season or in a hard season, we are grateful that you are faithful and that you are with us in the valley. And that because you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we now can walk by streams of living water, by peaceful water. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. We love you, and we pray all this in your name. And all God's people say. Would you stand?